You're listening to the Rent Roll Radio Show with Sterling Chapman. Hey, Rent Roll Radio listeners, welcome back to the show. As always, I'm your host, Sterling Chapman. Today, we have a really cool guest that is going to dive into some great detail for us. We have Kim Lockridge with Engineered Tax Services. Kim is here to talk to us about cost segregation studies. So this has been a hot topic lately, and there's tons of questions around what it means, who can use it, when they can use it, when you should use it, and what to do with it. So Kim's here to answer all of our questions. Kim, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Sterling. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And hello to all the audience listeners out there. Kim, could you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and where you came from and and how you got into real estate and what you did before and and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, sure. Um, I can kind of give you an abbreviated story, but um, I have uh, been investing in real estate since the late 90s. And um, let's see, I was an entrepreneur from a very young age. Um, and, uh, you know, I started with this company about 13 years ago. And there was a, a funny story that we'll reserve for another time, uh, you know, a little bit elaborate. But, um, you know, I, I came into this uh, position and just fell in love with uh, with tax. You know, I've always been, I was always really good at math growing up and uh, I just hated it until they put a dollar sign in front of those numbers. And then I had just found my calling, right? It was like the the heavens opened up and I said, okay, I have to do something in finance or with money or something like that. And so real estate is just right up that alley, right? It's, it's, uh, it's a, it's a good place for that. Um, so I've been in finance and accounting my whole life. Um, I kind of stumbled across my, my current boss now and, uh, started working for him about 13, 14 years ago and been here ever since we've grown this company to a nation wide uh, engineering company and we've been doing this for a very long time we're not just you know fly by night a company that uh, comes in and you know does a quick study and, and then is gone you know so we've, we have longevity and we have a great relationship with uh, Department of Treasury uh, personally I'm also on the uh, tax committee for the real estate roundtable in Washington DC so I'm involved with a lot of the legislature that comes down the pike I was uh, heavily involved with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act and and um, uh, input on that, um, the CARES Act as well. Uh, we were we were involved, um, and then I'm also on the board for uh, you know a big company. You guys might know the name IPX 1031 Exchange. Uh, it's one of the the country's largest uh, intermediaries uh, for 1031 exchanges. So we uh, um, you know I work in that capacity as well. So uh, but as far as bringing me here to today, you know it's just more or less my role with uh, engineering tax services and uh, just my love for, for cost segregation and real estate. And they kind of go hand in hand in my book. Awesome. Well, it sounds like you uh, have quite the resume. So um, super excited <laughs> to ask all the questions that I've been having. I guess for our, our, our guests that aren't as familiar with the, the subject matter, can you kind of start from the ground up and, and like define like what is cost segregation? When should we do it and why should we do it? Yeah. Um, cost segregation is, uh, it's interesting. Um, I'll kind of start out with if you don't do cost segregation, what's going to happen is you're, you're going to depreciate your investment property over, um, either 39 years for commercial property or 27 and a half years for residential property. An asterisk on that is unless it's a vacation rental and then it's 39 years like a hotel. So, um, so we, yeah, go ahead. I, I got a question. Uh, 
multifamily, an apartment complex, does that fall under commercial or does that fall under residential? Are we 27 and a half or are we 39? Yeah, it's 27 and a half. That's considered residential. Um, mobile home parks where people live, that's also considered 27 and a half. Um, commercial buildings, you know, industrial, medical office buildings, um, self-storage, those kinds of things are all going to be 39 year. Um, and vacation rentals. So vacation rentals uh, is a 39 year. So the IRS likes to look at that as a hotel and not so much as like a, a dwelling or a living residence. Um, so essentially what you would do is you'd, let's say you bought a building for a million dollars, you do take out your land, say it's 800,000, you take the 800,000 and you depreciate that over the course of either 27 and a half or 39 years respectively. Um, that's just what happens. Um, so the depreciation is something that you get and it offsets your income. So you have your income, you have depreciation to offset that, and that kind of helps you with, with your tax liability because depreciation on a building is very real. You're constantly having to make upgrades to a building to keep it in its ordinary operating condition. Otherwise, it will just continue to deteriorate. So you get a depreciation, which is a deduction for the value of that property each year as it sits, as old as it is, um, and you always start with your purchase price. Um, cost segregation is a little bit different. So instead of depreciating that property over 27 and a half or 39 years, respectively, um, we have the option to do a cost seg city, which actually breaks down all of the components in the property. Um, let's face it, the carpeting that you bought in that house or the multifamily is not going to last 27 and a half years, right? I see Sterling, you're laughing about that. It's very true. You're going to be replacing that carpet every... I'm pretty sure I've bought some houses with 27 and a half year old carpet and it was not a pretty sight. <laughs> You're probably right. I would imagine that some of those still exist out there. Um, you know, and so they, they, they might not be in very good operating conditions. <laughs> Um, and so, you know, the IRS, uh, you know, what happened cost segregation in its, in its, uh, form that we know it now has actually been around since the 1940s, believe it or not. It's not a new thing. It's not anything that is, um, like a loophole or this is, you know, brand new and whatnot. This is a, I mean, it's been around for a while. There's a lot of court cases. There's a lot of, um, things that substantiate cost segregation. And essentially what it is, is real estate owners went, you know, to the IRS and said, there is no way that I need to be depreciating this property over this 39 year period of time. That's just asinine. So let's, you know, let's move forward and let's, um, come up with a different way or they basically what happened was they said, well, we're going to do it our way and then you can take me to court. <laughs> so the IRS lost, right? And that's how COSEC has actually been born out of court cases where these real estate, uh, you know, pioneers that I like to call um, had gone in and challenged them and said, you know, this is not okay. So the IRS said, okay, our rule is that you have to delete, you have to depreciate it over this 27 or 39 years, but we're going to give you an alternate method of depreciation. So it's kind of like the difference between a cash basis or a accrual basis. There's no different. It's just a different method of accounting. You can choose which one. There's not a right answer or a wrong answer. However, there's a huge benefit to, to implementing the cost segregation. Um, another analogy to, to kind of help you with it might bring it into terms uh, into everyone's mind is that um, like my, I have three daughters and my daughters, you know, have just a regular job and, they, and one of them doesn't, you know, own a house yet. I'm getting them all into real estate, but you know, she's got income, she's in school and she files a 1040 easy. 
right? Everyone knows that 1040 easy is a simple one or two page document that you file your taxes on. You can do it online. It's super simple. Um, that's one method of filing. Now, as you get older and you have more income and you have more deductions and you have, you know, mortgage interest and all these things, you want to itemize your deductions. And so you file a 1040. And that 1040 might, you need, you know, you might need a CPA and the CPA is going to help you get more tax deductions and they're worth their weight in gold, right? Um, and so you're, you're choosing now instead of taking your standard deductions on a 1040 easy, you're taking itemized deductions on a 1040. Well, that's the same thing as cost seg. Think of the cost seg as uh, your straight line depreciation is your standard depreciation. That's just your normal, here it is, straightforward, this is what you get if you want it. Um, well, you have to take it, but whatever. So if you can use it. And then the other way is cost segregation, which is kind of like your 1040. We're itemizing all the components in the building, breaking them all down and showing and proving to the IRS that these components are estimated that they are not going to last as long. So we get to depreciate them faster. So we have like five-year buckets and 15-year buckets. And then we have our long-term bucket, which is the 27 or 39-year. Um, and so cost segregation in a nutshell is a essentially a compartmentalization of all the components in the building broken out and put into different class lives so you can take more depreciation in, uh, in accordance with what the actual life of that asset would be instead of just taking your straight line. I know that was long-winded, but hopefully that's helpful. Absolutely. So my next question is, when should you do a cost segregation? Does it make sense for me to get a cost segregation study on my $120,000 rent house down the street? Mm -hmm. A lot of CPAs will say no. A lot of CPAs will say, no, that's really just for bigger commercial buildings because it doesn't make cost sense to do it on a small property. Um, that is very old school thinking. Um, it's extremely dated. Uh, so if your CPA is telling you that, there's kind of a red flag. <laughs> I just um so obvi I think we you you're doing a cost segregation study on one of our projects, aren't you? So that yeah, and, and historically I've always that's what I've always heard was we just do it on the large apartment mm -hmm. complexes. And I have a very large portfolio of single family houses. And I met somebody the other day who was like, Oh, you're yeah, that's old school. You're crazy. Here, call this guy. They'll they'll do all your single family houses. So super uh super yeah. excited to dive into that. Yeah, so um, it doesn't really matter because, uh, so we should probably back up a minute and talk about bonus depreciation because that is the reason why now it makes sense and why that mentality was kind of old yep. school thinking because that was pre-bonus depreciation. Yep. Um, so let's start with the fact that you do a cost seg study and we're breaking out the components of the property and we have a five-year bucket, a 15-year bucket, and then we have your, let's say it's multifamily, so it's 27 and a half years, okay? Um, and let's say that it is a million-dollar property. Let's just call it net of land. Your, your depreciable basis is a million dollars. Um, then we shift in our cost seg study about 20% into a five-year classification, which is pretty average on that. Um, and then another 10% into 15-year. Five-year bucket would be stuff like carpeting, paint, decorative lighting, appliances, the mechanical, the electrical and plumbing that service those appliances. You know, there's, there's quite a few things that go into that five-year bucket. A 15-year bucket would house things like your landscaping, your gravel, your driveways, your parking lots, your carports, um, fencing, signage, landscaping, anything outside, you know, the, the building. Um, and so the IRS says that if you choose 
to do a cost study and you shift assets from a long-term asset, which is your 27 and a half or 39 year property into a class life, a bucket less than 20 years, which includes your five and 15 year property. Okay. Then we will allow you to take a bonus depreciation of a hundred percent. Now, what does that mean? So the bonus depreciation, normally, if you have a five-year bucket, you're going to depreciate that 20% or so 200,000 of your million dollar purchase. You're going to depreciate that over five years. And then the other 100,000 that you get in the 15-year bucket, which was 10%, if you remember our analogy, that gets depreciated over 15 years, okay? So you have some overlap, right? You have this bucket has year one of my five, and here's year one of my 15, and here's year one of my 27 and a half, right? And you add them all together. So you have a little bit more complexity to it, uh, but it's very, very lucrative. Uh, bonus depreciation kicks in as a result of cost segregation. So you did a cost seg study, you would now have your five and 15-year buckets. Bonus depreciation is applied at 100% depending on the year you bought the property and, and what the circumstances are. But uh, 100% means that you don't have to wait 5 or 15 years for that depreciation. You get it all in year one. So let's say that I bought my property on December 31st of 2021. Okay, And it's a multifamily. I paid a million dollars. That's my basis. I do a cost seg study. If I didn't do a cost seg study on it, not only would you only get one twenty seventh and a half, but you also prorate it for how many months you've owned it. So you'll you'll get a couple hundred dollars worth of depreciation because you've only owned it for like one day, right? If you do a cost seg study and it qualifies for the bonus depreciation, and then I have a tax deduction, I have on my $1 million basis, um, and then I do a cost study, and let's say I get my 30%, my 20 and my 10% in five and 15 year property, then that's a $300,000 um, qualification that, that qualifies for the bonus depreciation. And I, even on December 31st of 2021, I get to take a tax deduction of $300,000 in year one on the 2021 tax return, okay? So I get it all right now, which is a huge, huge benefit and strategically really important to decide when you buy these properties in accordance with your tax situation and your tax strategy. Um, the bonus depreciation is a powerful tool. It uh, has been around uh, since 2006, but it was really only made for new construction up until uh, 2017, when we had President Trump come in and give us the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, and they increased it to 100%, but they also expanded it to cover purchases. Okay, so now you can just buy a property and you can apply the bonus depreciation, which has never been the case before. It's unprecedented. So this was a huge gift from our real estate president. Okay, like him or hate him, it was a huge gift to real estate community. Um, so this bonus depreciation now, just so you know, starts to sunset. Now we've had it 100% from the end of 2017, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. It starts to sunset in 2023. It goes down to 80% and then 60, then 40, then 20, and then it's gone in 2027. Um, so we have a few more years that we have this really nice gift that we can utilize to help build our uh, portfolio and build our wealth um, until it phases out. And one last point before we move on to the next question about bonus depreciation, there is currently a tax bill that is uh, suggesting that we do away with a sunsetting, which would mean that we will keep 100% bonus depreciation through 2026, which would be huge. Uh, so keep your fingers crossed for that. Keep it, Keep an eye out for it, but it might be coming. Awesome. Awesome. So 
my next question is, what does that mean for me? Or, or, or what does that mean for anyone who is investing in real estate, either actively or passively? Um, specifically, you know, I think we had talked about earlier, you know, what, what does that mean for, for the investor that's, that, that has a W2 job, maybe that, that that's not all they do. So where can we apply these, these bonus depreciations, these depreciation losses, what kind of income can it offset? Okay. So as far as uh, when and what it means to, to you or somebody else, right? It's really going to depend on your, uh, the way you're structured, the way you're set up. Um, and a lot of people don't, um, they don't know about the passive and the ordinary incomes and how it sits on different sides of your tax return. Um, if you have, you know, a normal W-2 job and you have, you know, um, you know, you get a paycheck, your husband gets a paycheck, um, they take taxes out of your check, um, your, um, your, your, um, primary residence, you know, interest is a deduction against that, you know, the contributions to 401k is a deduction against that, right? Those are all deductions that reduce your income and then you pay tax on what's left, right? Those are deductions, but all of that falls in an ordinary classification, ordinary income or active income. That means that you're actively participating in this that creates the income for you, right? And so, um, then you have passive. Passive income is a, to create an imaginary line in between your ordinary and your passive income. Passive income will be things that you actually make money passively. You don't have to do too much. So you buy some real estate, you have somebody manage it for you, you really don't do that much. Um, that income is going to stay on the passive side. And there's some, you know, I always say that, you know, if you, if you really know the rules, it's easier to know how to break them <laughs> um, and stay within the legal confines, right? You just need to know the rules you're playing by in order to play the, the game correctly. If you don't know the rules, it makes it very difficult and you tend to struggle. And then, you know, you ever play that game for the first time and then somebody keeps adding on. It's like, oh, yeah, well, then there's this rule. And then there's this rule. It's like, well, why didn't you sure. tell me that before? Right? right. That's real estate. When you first start getting into real estate, you don't know. You know, you're like, oh, there's this and there's this. And you're like, ah, so you're learning the rules as you go. Um, it's in your best interest to make sure that you're listening to podcasts like Sterling's or other people that you can find that will help you teach you about what the rules are. So then you know how to play the game. Um, but passive and, and active are two completely different things. And in order for your real estate uh, activity to be active, you have to have uh, either real estate professional status. And there's some criteria around that. I don't think we have time to get into the details of that today. But, you know, do some research on your own. What creates a real estate professional? You don't have to have a real estate license. Um, you'd be surprised. But see if you can fit your life into some of those rules to make that ordinary income for you. Or maybe if you have a spouse that stays home, they can that that person can be made the real estate professional, and then that becomes their ordinary income. And if you file married jointly, then that deduction or those losses on the real estate will actually offset the W two wages. Okay, so there's there's all kinds of things you can do. There's universities, there's programs out there that will teach you kind of how to become a real estate professional or what you need to do. Um, so 
the reason I preface that answer with that information is because it's important to know whether you are an active investor or whether you're a passive investor. And if you uh, are an active investor and you can um, take the deductions uh, from cost segregation or bonus depreciation against your W-2 wages or your spouse's W-2 wages, then it's obviously much more lucrative for you, right? Um, the alternative is that this is a passive activity for you and it's, it houses in your passive activity bucket. Um, now, let's talk about that for a minute because it sounds like you're in that situation and some of your, your um, listeners are in that situation where these, this activity in real estate is, is potentially passive. If you have passive um, activity, you might approach your CPA and they might say, hey, you know, don't do a cost like study because you already have passive losses that you can't really use. So they just sit there and they just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, so don't do a cost egg. I hear that all the time. But my rebuttal to that is that I'm a real estate investor. Okay. If I have a bucket, and I mean a bucket of passive losses that I can't use right now, then I'm going to fight. Now I'm going to learn the rules and I'm going to find a stream of income from somewhere to put into my passive bucket so that I can offset those losses and all that income becomes tax free. The other thing that I use it for is let's say I, you know, I consider bonus depreciation to be a gift. It's a gift from the IRS, it is a gift from your congressman, it is a gift from the president, the, the past president. And, you know, if you don't take it, you can't, it's, it's difficult to go back and get it later. There's fees involved to reconcile. There's only a two-year limit to go back and get it. And so if you don't take it, you're kind of like, no, I don't really want that gift. Well, I don't know about you, but I was always taught that if you don't take a gift that's been given to you, then you're an Indian giver. <laughs> so I take the gift and then I sit this in my passive bucket and I ask myself, okay, now I have whatever, $500,000 worth of passive losses that I'm not using, using. But let's say I go out and buy a property and I renovate it or I flip it and I sell it and I make, you know, $100,000, $200,000 on this house. Now that becomes a passive activity because I was hiring contractors to do all the work. And then I turn around and I put that $100,000 against my half million dollar losses. And I just put $100,000 in my pocket without having to pay a dime of taxes on it. So Alternatively, uh, so, one other piece to that is let's say I have an offer on a property that I can't refuse. And, you know, I was like, wow, and I'm just going to make, you know, I'm going to double my money on this property. And if I group all of my activities together in the passive activity bucket, then I can sell that property depending on when it's right for my tax situation. And I can take the proceeds from that sale that's also passive and I can offset that. And I literally put every penny in my pocket and I don't have to pay tax on the income from that. So I use it as a strategy. Absolutely. I got a spe very specific question. And it's, it, it is around, you know, we, we syndicate apartment complexes and a lot of other syndicators we hear kind of tout, you know, well, you should come invest in our apartment company because of all the tax benefits. But, you know, a lot of times our typical passive investor is a engineer who doesn't have any other real estate investments, doesn't have any other passive investments. Mm -hmm. Is it, is it accurate to say that, that if, if their only investment activity outside of their W-2 job is investing into our 
project that there's really no tax advantages for them? Um, your mic cut out there for a second. The last part of what you said was what? If if their only investment activity outside of their W-2 job is investing in our project, is there really no tax advantages mm -hmm. for them? Are they able to take take that in, in, to help them in any way? Or is that just kind of a moot point for them? You know, it's going to be passive activity for them, you know, and it would be up to them to determine um, what other passive activity they can put into that bucket, right? And you, uh, I, I look at it as a tax strategy, but chances are, like, I, I invest in a lot of deals. I, I invest in a lot. I'm, I'm at the GP level. I'm at the LP level. I, less, I, I invest with a lot of groups. Most of them are my clients that I've been working with for a long time, and I know they're doing cost seg. Um, and I will tell you that that's one of the biggest questions I have when you're a syndicator, um, you know, you're an operator and you're a syndicator and you're saying, okay, I have these investors coming in, but, but how do you know that they don't have any other deals that they're investing in? Because chances are, if they're going to invest in your deal, they're probably either well on their way to investing in other deals or they already have invested in other deals and you don't have the visibility of that fact. And so what happens is what's, what's in reality, what's really happening is that you are, you are, uh, you have investors that you are, uh, distributing checks every quarter, whatever, sure. uh, every month or whatever that is. So whatever that looks like, you're delivering distribution checks, but at the end of the year, you're also delivering a negative K1. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't really matter whether that's passive or active for them. What they're saying is, I just got checks in the mail and I didn't have to pay tax on them. That's pretty cool. How did you do that magic, Sterling? And so then I have actually these these uh, syndicators come to me and say, can you do? Can you please present to us on Coseg to our investor dinner because these people don't understand why they're getting a negative K one, but they're still getting distribution checks, right? But at the same time, let's say you deliver a negative K one that's passive for them. And then they have invested in three other deals that are positive. Now they can group that activity together in their tax return. And now those losses from your deal will offset the income from their other deals and they still don't pay tax. So don't just automatically assume that because they're a passive investor, they can't use losses because I think that's also a myth. Awesome. 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 That's a, that's a, Great answer to the question. So what, when does it make sense to do a cost seg on the smaller properties we discussed earlier? And what is the cost associated with that? So I think in the past it was cost prohibitive to actually do the study. And then we also didn't have the bonus depreciation. What has changed out, mm -hmm. uh, outside around that, that topic? So the benefits have gone through the roof because of bonus depreciation. So obviously that's going to make the return on investment a lot more sweet. Um, the other thing is that we've, we are very, we've become very efficient in what we do. And so our costs have been driven down. Um, so we, um, you know, I can't give you a, a, a price uh, for a project. I mean, it could range anywhere from 2,500 to 
15,000. Most, you know, single family homes are on the lower end, you know, 25 to 3,500 maybe for a house, um, you know, residential property, uh, you know, apartment complexes, depending on how many units they have, maybe 6,000, you know, big, huge, you know, massive thing, depending with hundreds of thousands of square feet, maybe, you know, maybe 10 grand. Um, I'm just throwing numbers out. Please don't hold me to them. Um, <laughs> I always hate when people ask me what the fee is and they're like, well, I can't really tell you. But then I get suckered into telling them the fee and they're like, you said it was going to be, right? right. <laughs> right? <laughs> so don't pigeonhole me, please. Um, but, uh, but this is a full blown engineering study where we're breaking out, we're rebuilding the building on paper from the ground up using construction software. We're applying the IRS approved pricing guide to that. We also apply a condition factor because everything in that building, especially if it's a used building, you're going to have everything deteriorating at different levels. So you're going to have a condition factor, what condition that asset is, um, everything that we break down. And we break down hundreds of thousands of assets. Okay, everything from the different layers to the roof, to the windows, the doors, the walls, all the way to the light switch plate covers on the wall. Okay, everything is broken out. Um, it's very detailed. There's a lot of companies out there that are doing these uh, software-based. They don't come to the property, which is actually in uh, out of compliance with the IRS. And uh, essentially, you know, they they they're not going to be able to support that number. And the benefit to that is going to be probably roughly half of what you're going to get in a full-blown engineering study. So you're leaving money on the table, right? Um, uh, but so there's there's all these things that are going on out there, people trying to to be competitive in that market and, and whatnot. But as far as doing a cost-sig study, I would say, you know, I hate to say if you can use deductions, do a cost seg because your CPA might come back to you and be like, well, you can't use the deductions, you know. But see, again, that's when I go back to, I can't use them right now. But how does that CPA know that I'm planning to sell a property next year? Or how do they know that I'm not going to get an offer in two years, right? So I, I say if it's a gift, take it and then figure out what to do with it and how to use it. Not you can't use it, so don't do it. You know, like take it, figure it out, bank it on your report. If you can't use it this year, it just rolls over to next year. There's no penalty. So I'm a fan. Um, I see the power of it every single day. And oftentimes I have clients that come to me and it's just like, why doesn't everyone do this? You know, like. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, real quick, I want to hop over to our radio round, which I'm completely surprising you with because I usually tell guests in the beginning, but I forgot to tell you. So um, okay, <laughs> it's just three questions to help our listeners get to know you a little bit better. So the first question is what's your favorite book? Oh my gosh. That's a great question because I like books. Um, probably the, my favorite right now is is called The Coddling of the American Mind. Um, it's a New York bestseller list um, written by kind of a liberal psychological uh, professor. And uh, I was actually shocked. I have three daughters. Um, my oldest is 28. And then I have a 25-year-old police officer. And then I have one that's 19 in second year college. Um, I... I really got into that because my kids are kind of older and in that like in and out of college stage. <laughs> and I was blown away by the enlightenment of kind of where this whole marksman movement came from and how it came to fruition and this whole cancel culture. Like it, it explains it really, really well. And it's something that I think is very confusing to a lot of people. And I mean, I'm still confused about it. Right. But it was so eye opening to kind of learn how and what we've been doing to our 
are young people these days. Um, so that's actually even my favorite book right now. Awesome. Believe it or not. <laughs> so the next question is the one I should have gave you a heads up on because people sometimes scramble. Um, what is your favorite quote? Oh, that's a good question too. Um, Oh, yeah. Probably one that's my favorite that is most fitting for this show. I have another one, but it's more life. Uh, but this one for the show, uh, my favorite quote is that I believe everyone should pay tax, but there's nothing in the code that says you have to leave a tip. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> you can print that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, what's your favorite thing to do outside of work? Oh, God, real estate. Um, you know, most people have hobbies, like my sister's an equestrian and she does dressage riding. And, you know, I have a lot of friends who are golfers and all this. I was like, I just, you know, it's like my hobby is real estate and it's kind of a sickness. But, you know, when I'm not working and doing classic studies for other people, I'm finding property and I'm managing property. And, you know, we have a ton. We have a ton of properties. Um, we have a lot of uh, investments. And then we also have uh, personal, um, uh, we, we invest in, uh, my, my, we, my, my husband and I, uh, we invest in cannabis warehouses. We've got 12 of those. We've got over 800 multifamily doors. We've got four or five, you know, we have five uh, vacation rentals. We've got a bunch of long-term rentals. And we actually, believe it or not, we manage all of it ourselves <laughs> on top of our full-time job. So, um, so that is something that we have kind of learned because I'm, I'm cheap and, uh, and I don't think that anyone will do it as good as I do it. <laughs> Hopefully you don't have too many property managers out there that I'm offending right now. But unfortunately I've, I've had some bad experiences with property managers and I'm just like, I'm just going to goddamn do it myself. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry for swearing. But. Yeah. I hear you. <laughs> no, I, I have ragged, I have ragged property managers on the show enough times. They, they either don't listen or they're used to it. So, <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure. There's a lot of bad ones out there. I'm sure there's a few good ones, but there's a lot of bad ones out there. So, Well, awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining our show. I learned a ton today. I was really excited to have you on. Where can our listeners uh, find out more about you or get in touch with you or hire you or... Yeah, thank you. And we do like a complimentary benefit analysis where we'll, we'll say, here's what we think we're going to be able to get for you in a classic study, and here's how much it would cost. Um, our company uh, website is is uh, the same as my email. It's engineered with the ED on the end, tax services with the S on the end, uh, .com. Um, I, I do have a bio on there under the team, so you can email me directly from there. It's always best. Uh, just let me know that you came from the Sterling Show because I, I think that's always helpful that I can let Sterling know that we actually had some uh, people calling in regards to that and who, who were listening. Um, and uh, uh, also my email address is just klockridge, and it's, uh, it's on the screen if you can't see it, but if it's uh, L-O-C-H, R-I-D-G-E at engineeredtaxservices.com. So klockridge at engineeredtaxservices.com. Um, it's on our website if you want to come find me. Um, also, you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, you can probably do a search for Kim Lockridge and I'll probably come up. I've done a lot of uh, podcasts. We do a lot of uh, webinars, presentations, uh, presentations and uh, you know board positions. So it'll probably come up if you just Google. But thank you for the opportunity. It's been fun. Awesome. Thank you so much, Kim. I really enjoyed it. And I look forward to uh, keeping up with you. And, and I'm sure I will uh, bug you with questions more often than you'd like. 
No, you are fine. Anytime you have questions and anyone can reach out by email, um, you know, I have a whole team to help me behind behind me. So, um, you know, any, anything you've got, we'll, we'll be responsive and we'll help out. But thanks again for having me on the show. It's been fun. Really appreciate the opportunity. And uh, let me know if you guys have any questions. Okay. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to the Rent Roll Radio Show brought to you by Crestworth Capital. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a rating and review. You can also visit us at CrestworthCapital.com or RentRollRadio.com or follow us on Facebook at RentRollRadio or at CrestworthCapital. If you would like to reach us, feel free to shoot us an email at info at RentRollRadio.com or sterling at CrestworthCapital.com. We hope you come back next week to join us on some more of our journey. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.